Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. As Jesus was saying this, the leader of the synagogue came and knelt before him. My daughter has just died, he said, but you can bring her back to life if you would just come and lay your hand on her. So Jesus and his disciples got up and went with him. Just then a woman who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding came up from behind and she touched the fringe of his robe. For she thought, if I could just touch his robe, I will be healed. Jesus turned around. And when he saw her, he said, daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus arrived at the official's home, he saw the noisy crowd and heard the funeral music. Get out, he told them. The girl isn't dead, she's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him. And after the crowd was put outside, however, Jesus went in and took the girl by the hand and she stood up. The report of this miracle swept through the entire countryside. Pray with me now. Father, we love you and we are grateful for your presence in this place. We're thankful for your word because it is inspired. Every word, every page. And Lord, today we ask that you'd be strong in my weakness. My life in this ministry would forever be hidden behind the message of the cross. And Lord, that you would illuminate this word right before our eyes. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Lord, consecrate us, sanctify us, mold us more and more into your image. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So a little recap and context into Matthew chapter nine. Jesus is uh, pursued by Jairus, who was a leader in the synagogue. Most historians say that he had a role similar to a modern day pastor. Okay, so he worked in the temple, in the synagogue, orchestrated the services. His daughter fell sick and was dying. And he ran to Jesus, knelt down before him, and begged and pleaded with him to come and heal his daughter. Jairus believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the savior and healer of the world. He said, if you would just come to my house and lay hands on her, I know that she will be resurrected from the dead. While Jesus and his disciples are on course to Jairus's house to heal his daughter, a woman with an issue of blood who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years, heard that Jesus was passing by and she pressed through that great multitude that day just to touch the hem of his garment. You have to understand that this woman was suffering not just physically, she was suffering emotionally, spiritually. This disease had infringed on literally every facet of her life. Scripture tells us that people with this condition were labeled ceremonially unclean. They were outcasts from society and even banished from the temple itself, unable to worship God in the fellowship of the saints. This had reached a level of profound desperation where the woman didn't care what anybody else in the crowd thought, she was going to press her way to the feet of the master. As she put her faith into action 
and touched the hem of his garment, the Bible says some theologically profound words, Jesus turned around. Now that may not sound like a theologically complex statement to you, but trust me, friends, it is. Jesus was on the way to the house of Jairus. He had a mission set before him, but there was a faith so great that it caught heaven and earth and caused Jesus to turn her way. I don't know about you, but I want the kind of faith that gets the attention of the Father. I don't know about you, but I want the kind of faith that makes Jesus turn my way. And that's what we're gonna look at today. So over the next few moments, we're gonna work our way through these verses that I read earlier. And I'll be honest with you, I'm way over uh, trying to impress you or preach a creative, thoughtful sermon. I'd just rather take about 10 verses and let's just go verse by verse and let's extract the word and let the word do the preaching. Are you with me? Three and a half of you are with me. Okay. So, but in all, all honesty, when I talk to new pastors getting ready to plant churches, you know what I tell them? I tell them just preach the word because the word is anointed. You don't even have to be that good at preaching. Just preach the word and you'll be anointed. How many of you know the word never returns void? It accomplishes what it was sent out to do. So over the next few moments, that's exactly what we're gonna do. The first thing I wanna extract and bring to your attention is in verse 18. It says that the leader of the synagogue came and knelt before him. By the way, the, this account is mentioned in three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three give the record of this miracle. Matthew really just kind of gives us the summary but Mark and Luke give us more detail, hence telling us the synagogue leader's name, Jairus, all right? In verse 18, it says that Jairus came to Jesus and he fell at his feet. And most scholars believe that this was an act of worship. So the first point I wanna make today is don't wait to worship. Tell your neighbor with some attitude, help me preach and tell them, don't wait to worship. Don't wait to worship. Jairus fell at the feet of Jesus and he worshiped him in spirit and in truth before his prayer was answered. I don't know if you're paying attention, but that's a special kind of faith that can worship regardless of his circumstances. His daughter was dying and here he finds himself at the feet of the master and before he can utter his prayer request, before he can ever let his need be known, the first thing Jairus does is he bows in adoration and he worships Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of worship I wanna have. I don't wanna be a person who my worship is tied to my circumstances. When life is good, I'm praising him. When life is bad, I'm critical and complaining. May we graduate from a circumstantial worship into a place where we worship him regardless of what's going on in our life. We don't have to wait for our situation to improve. We're gonna go ahead and worship you right now because Jairus understood, Lord, if you never heal my daughter, if you never do another thing for me, You've already done more than enough for me to praise you right here in the middle of this storm. I'm gonna tell you something powerful and profound changes in the life of a Christian when you begin to praise him for who he is rather than for what he's done. 
Anybody can praise God in the good days. Anybody can worship when they see a healing or a resurrection. But a mature Christian can even be in the valley of the shadow of death and praise his holy name. Let's be, and hey, one more thing while we're at it. Let's mature in our faith from praising God and worshiping God for what he can do for us. And let's graduate to a place where we worship him just because of who he is. You see, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is faithful, steadfast, merciful, full of grace and truth. Let's praise him and worship him for who he is because inevitably storms will come, valleys will happen. Don't let your worship be based on your circumstances. Base your worship on his character, his goodness. And this would be a great place right here to go ahead and praise the Lord and worship his name. Don't wait to praise him. Also, just a fun note here, just to make mention of, that often gets overlooked, is that Jesus actually accepted his worship. Now, I know that that may sound a little basic or elementary to you, but I want you to understand how profound this is. Because in this time period, and it's true today, you only worship God Almighty. Anything else is idolatry. Critics of our faith, naysayers, Muslims claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, flag on the play, homie. Yes, he did multiple, a myriad of times. But maybe more boldly than that is he accepted the worship of Jairus and he accepted the worship of the disciples. Think about it. In the Old Testament, when an angel would appear before men, they would bow and start to worship and the angel would be like, get up off the ground. I'm just an angel. But Jesus was enthroned on the praise of Jairus. He didn't rebuke him. He didn't correct him. He didn't divert it to the father. He accepted the praise of Jairus. You know why? Because Jesus is the word that became flesh. God incarnate, the image of the invisible God. In this moment, Jesus is saying to all of us, I am God. Do you see it? Three and a half of you are with me, but that's all right. <laughs> but you three are right. Okay, he's God. He accepted the worship of Jairus. The next thing, the second major thing I want to show you from this text is that Jesus meets us at the level of our faith. I'm going to say it again. Jesus meets us at the level of our faith. This is super important, church. It really is. Because the application here is that Jesus can work with imperfect faith. Oh, church, I'm trying to talk to you. You see, you don't have to have perfect, meticulous faith, all the theology of the Trinity understood perfectly to articulate. You don't have to have perfect faith for God to show up and move miraculously in your life. He'll take the weak faith. He'll take little faith, imperfect faith, and he'll use it for your good and his glory. Let me help you see this a little clearer. Let's go back to our buddy, Jairus, okay? First of all, we do celebrate his pray, I mean, his faith, right? Jairus believed Jesus was Messiah. He worshiped him. Jairus also believed that Jesus was able to heal, right? So, so far, so good. But watch what Jairus said to Jesus next. He said, 
my daughter is dead and I know you can heal her. So I'm gonna need you to come with me to my house, lay hands on her and then she'll get healed. In other words, he's reducing God and his ability and power to what he's seen him do in the past. He's putting God in a box saying, well, I know you can heal, but it's gotta be the same way you've always healed. Jairus had good faith, but not great faith. In Jairus's mind, Jesus had to physically be in the room, touching the daughter in order for her to be healed. But how many of you know, he's the God of time, space, and matter. And he speaks and creation responds. He spoke and the stars illuminate the heavens. How many of y'all remember the centurion whose servant laid paralyzed and dying? And that old Roman centurion said, Jesus, no need for you to come to my house. I'm unworthy to host you anyway. Merely at your word, he will be healed. And Jesus was amazed at that centurion's faith. And he said, this is the greatest faith in all of Israel because you believe that just merely at my word, your servant will live. Jairus had good faith. The centurion had great faith. Do you see it? The takeaway here is you don't have to have perfect faith and everything figured out for God to move in your life and on your behalf. You come to him just as you are. You come to him with your doubts. You come to him with your fear. You come to him with your struggle. You come to him with your imperfect faith because God can do a lot with a little. What does the scripture say? If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, mountains could be removed. Little is much when God is in it and God can do a lot with just a little faith. Anybody believe it today? God can do a lot with a little. Oh, that'll preach right there. That could be a sermon. He can do a lot with a little. He can do a lot. He truly can. Thank you, Jesus. Now, also, I want to show you something that is profound, and it's being illustrated through this text. Don't confuse knowledge with faith. Tell your neighbor, say, don't confuse knowledge with faith. Because we do. If I'm being honest, sometimes we blur the line of knowledge and faith and we kind of lump them all together. We think that if I'm growing in my knowledge, I must be also growing in my faith, but it doesn't always translate and work that way. I wanna show you this a little bit. Remember, we have two characters I just mentioned. Jairus, who worked in the temple, in the synagogue. Remember him? He was like a modern day pastor, according to most historians. And then we have the centurion, from Roman descent. Now listen, listen to this. Jairus had the knowledge. He worked in the synagogue. He knew the Torah. He knew the Old Testament better than many of us. And it's not a leap to say Jairus had more knowledge about God than the centurion. Because the centurion was a Roman, a Gentile, pagan, heathen a little bit, all right? That's the Roman culture. Although the centurion didn't have the same knowledge Jairus had, he demonstrated greater faith because knowledge doesn't always translate into great faith. You see, possessing knowledge is one thing, 
But unless it moves from your head into your heart and affects the way you live, affects the way you love, then it is, it's useless. Unrealized knowledge, unapplied knowledge is empty. Jairus had the knowledge, but Centurion had the faith. Both are important. It's important to study, to show yourself approved, to know the word of God, to invest it into your life. But church, don't fool yourself. You can intellectually know about God and not know him. This is not about a checkbox religious formality and routine. I went to church, check. I studied the Bible, check. I read the word, check. No, no, no. This is not a checklist. This is not a regimented system. This is a living relationship with God Almighty. And the purpose of the cross is not just to escape hell. It's to be reunited with your creator, to have a relationship with the creator of heaven and earth. So your knowledge doesn't always translate to great faith. So take the knowledge that you have, let it reach your heart and may it be applied into your life. There's a, there's a lot of us that we know intellectually that Jesus is the Lord, but just because you know Jesus is the Lord doesn't actually mean that he's reigning as Lord of your life. I'm preaching to you today. And I pray that we go from semantics, the motions, the outward expression and works of Christianity to genuine faith in operation in our life. Don't confuse knowledge with faith. Moving on, next major point in this text is the woman with the issue of blood, she was dying on the inside. Tell your neighbor, the one you've been ignoring, she was dying on the inside. Dying on the inside, yep. Real feel-good sermon to pick up 2024, right? Welcome to Vision. Um, you know, I don't want us to miss the desperate state in which this woman was in. She was bleeding internally for 12 years, not 12 days, not 12 weeks, 12 years. She was slowly dying from within. Life was slipping away from her every day. She was declared by the temple ceremonially unclean, meaning that she was unwelcome in the synagogue or in the places of worship. She had absolutely run out of options. She was not just dying physically. She was dying emotionally and spiritually. This woman, her soul was vexed. According to the law in Leviticus, a person with her condition was to be separated from their spouse, removed from their own home, socially exiled and quarantined, excommunicated from all of the social engagements, including worship. Again, this woman had lived under this oppression for 12 years, and finally, she is at the end of herself. She is run out of options, and she is in a desperate state where she is reaching out for Jesus to rescue her. Church, I want you to lean in really quickly. This is so much more than a story. This is way more than just historical text. This is a spiritual depiction of our true sinful condition. 
Her physical ailment is the picture of what sin does to our lives. I know when you read the Bible, you want to picture yourself as one of the disciples, you know, behind Jesus cheering him on. Yeah, healer Jesus, amen. Or like, you want to be like Jesus, you know, touching people, helping them, right? But no, no, you're the one that's paralyzed, lame, and has a disease. Tell you, no amens, but I, I'm preaching truth here, all right? Tell your neighbor, you got issues. <laughs> like, no, seriously, husbands, be careful. Husbands, watch out, all right? You made it into 2024, let's get you through it, all right? So, <laughs> but I need you to understand this, all right? This is a picture of sin. It truly is, all right? And in the Bible, when you read about the paralyzed man lowered through the ceiling, you see the, the deaf man, the blind man, the woman with the issue of blood, that's you. So if, that's me. So if we're looking at how do we apply the scripture, let's look at the person with the issues because that's us, all right? And this blood disease is the description of sin and its effect on your soul. Just like that blood disorder was slowly killing this woman with the issue of blood, so sin is slowly killing you. You know, I've had people tell me, they say, well, why is sin such a big deal? Why can't God just get over it? I mean, after all, everybody sins. It's not that big of a deal. Sin is a monumental deal because sin is killing you. Like a parent would hate cancer that has afflicted their child. So God has a righteous indignation and wrath against sin because it is the cancer of your soul undoing his perfect creation and life is slipping from you every day because of sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. You're dying. Sin, not only is it killing you, but it has labeled you unclean. It's labeled us unclean. I know we don't like to hear that, but this is what the scripture tells us. You know where it makes us unclean? In our own conscience and in our own hearts. The Bible says that sin robs us of our confidence before God. In other words, when you sin, do you feel like just doing a Bible study? When you sin, do you feel like, just praise the Lord, somebody? I mean, I know I'm being funny, but no, right? When you sin, you do what Adam and Eve did in the garden. You run and hide behind trees and you cover yourself. You cover your nakedness with fig leaves. And then you immediately try to go do good things to justify morally your subconscious. We run from God. Because just like this disease quarantined and isolated the woman with the issue of blood from everybody else and even God himself in the temple. So sin isolates us from the master. And make no mistake about it. It's not God saying, ooh, get away from me, you unclean thing. No, no, we run from him. Isaiah said, we are like sheep who have gone astray. We've left God's path for our own. Proverbs says there's a way before every man that seems to be right, but it ends in death. Make no mistake about it. Satan's plan has always been to isolate you. Isolate you from God. Isolate you from the church, from the fellowship of the saints. Because there's power and strength in number and unity. 
don't know if you've ever watched the National Geographic channel. Not to get too graphic, but it's the, the little sheep that gets isolated that ends up on the menu. <clears throat> the wolf doesn't jump into the middle of the pack and start biting sheep. No, it waits for that dumb one that is out there. <laughs> don't send me an email, okay? <laughs> that wasn't in the notes. The wolf doesn't jump in the middle of the pack and start going crazy biting stuff. The wolf waits for the one to isolate itself. And that becomes prey. See, Satan wants you offended. Offended at the church, offended at your connect group, disconnected, disengaged, isolated from God, because then you are easy prey. Now listen, we often have believed the lie that sin only affects us. I've bought into this lie. I'm sure many of you sitting in this building and watching online, I'm sure you felt this before where you think, well, nobody, it's not hurting anybody. It's really not that bad. It's just me. Well, let me warn you. Sin is never just affecting you. What happened with the woman with the issue of blood? She was separated from her husband and exiled from her own home. Her disease isolated her from the people that loved her and needed her the most. And sin is a bigger deal than you think it is. And it does more than just affect you. It affects the people that you love and that love you. Not in a sense that they're guilty for your sin, but in a sense that there's still an isolation, a distance. There is something severed even between you and your spouse and your family. Sin separates and affects others. People get addicted to pornography and they, they do it under the guise of, well, it's just me. No, it is affecting every area and aspect of your life. It is illustrated in the woman with the issue of blood that truly her sin affected others and your sin and mine affects others. And make no mistake about it, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There are many of you in this room today, right now, and like this woman, you look okay on the outside, but on the inside, you're bleeding, you're dying. Sin is still reigning in your life. You're hemorrhaging on the inside. If you were to see this woman in the crowd, you would have had no idea that she was dying right before your eyes. But many of you in this room today, you're going through the motions of Christianity. You're going through the motions of your faith. You look holy. You look spiritual. You read the lyrics off the screen. You raise your hand at the right time. But inside, your heart is far from God. And God is not reigning on the throne of your heart. No, it's self or sin or relationship or lust. I want to warn you today that there can only be one God, one master. You will love one and you will hate the others. You might be in this room today and you're dying on the inside. I want to warn you, you might be able to fool me, but you are not fooling God Almighty. And the days of going through the motions are over. May we come and touch and reach out for the master that he would transform us and cleanse us from within. But I have good news. Mark chapter two, verse 17 says this. When Jesus heard this, he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call those, not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. When the Pharisees heard this, 
They're like, oh, okay, yeah, he came for the, you know, the prostitutes, the drug addict, you know, he came for that. Because we're actually pretty good. You know, we're holy. We know the Torah. We're pretty good. Right over their head. What Jesus was actually saying is, we're all sick, just not everybody knows it. We're all sick, just not everybody admits it. I love what he said in the New Living Translation. It said, I didn't come to save those who think they are righteous. I came for those who know they're sinners. Make no mistake about it. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3 says none of us are truly righteous in and of ourselves. None of us are truly seeking after God. All of us have strayed from the creator and we have loved the things created more than the creator himself. The truth is we are all afflicted with the spiritual disease. But I have more good news. Not only did Jesus come for sinners, but he doesn't just treat the symptoms of our disease. On the cross, the power of sin was broken. The book of Romans tells us that as he died and his body pierced through on the cross, that literally he gained power and victory over sin and its power and reign has now been broken off of our lives. Church, this is really good news. And to put it in modern English, here's what the scripture is telling you. That those who are in Christ Jesus, former things have passed away and now all things have become new. They're born again, a new creation. Scripture is not saying that to be a Christian, you will be perfect and sinless, walking on water, floating on a cloud. No, 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 no. Scripture says if any of you claim to be without sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. When it says that he broke the power of sin, it's not saying that we will ever be sinless on this side of eternity, but it is declaring that we will be free from sins, reign, and life-controlling addictions and habits that had ensnared our lives. There's a difference between a Christian who makes a mistake and one who lives a deliberate lifestyle of habitual sin. Those who are in Christ we are a new creation. Our hearts, our desires, our perspective has been transformed. And though we are not perfect, we are not a slave to sin any longer. Now, we don't sin because we have to. We sin because we choose to. And the Lord said to every born-again Christian, I will give you a way of escape in the moment that you are tempted, a way out. That is a promise not given to the world because the power of sin is broken at the cross. Do you understand that in our past, we sinned because that's who we were? It was our master. It reigned over us. We sinned and we didn't think anything of it because we were one in the same. But now a great light has shined into the darkness and we can't enjoy sin like we used to. We can't go back to doing the things we used to do because something has changed inside of me and sin has lost its power in my life. It has been broken. Isn't that good news, church? He who the son sets free is free indeed. And let me tell you real life. I'm still not the man I wanna be today, but I'm far from who I used to be. And as I look back, I still make mistakes, but I don't fall in the same places I used to fall because the Holy Spirit has done a new work inside of me. 
giving me new desires, new appetites, and I don't even love the things I used to love anymore. Can anybody give witness to the power of the gospel? You believe it today? It's the truth. Moving on through this text, Mark's gospel in chapter five, verses 25 and 26, tell us something profound. It tells us that the woman with the issue of blood, not only was she dying from within, but she spent every dollar she had. She literally went bankrupt trying to get doctors to cure her of this incurable disease. The Bible says that she spent all that she had to be made well, and instead they made her worse. This next point that I want you to write down, if you're taking notes, is the world only makes it worse. The world only makes it worse. And see, the irony is the world promises joy and happiness and escape from your pain and your past. The world promises fulfillment and satisfaction, but it overpromises and it underdelivers. The world is not enough for you. And just like the world could not cure the woman with the issue of blood, neither will anything in this world cure the sin, sin, sin nature that is within us. Nothing else can do it. You know, alcohol, it overpromises, underdelivers. People drink so that they can escape pain. And have you ever heard an alcoholic say, you know what? I finally drank enough that all my problems went away. Like, when was the last time you heard somebody say, well, you know what, I, I had enough, uh, you know, affairs that eventually, you know, I'm content now. No, no, they, these are things you never hear. It said because the world makes you worse than you were before. It takes everything you have and it leaves you with nothing. The world overpromises, underdelivers. It's not enough for you and nothing in this world will ever satisfy you. And these doctors got one thing right when they said about the woman with the issue of blood, they said, you are incurable. And they're right. Nothing in this world can cure the sin, nature, and disease that has afflicted us. But what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Jesus can save, deliver, and transform. He's the only one. He's the only one who can. I gotta say this too. Like, do you realize that Jesus was this woman's last resort? Like for 12 years, she had tried anything and everything, but came up empty. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were Jesus, she touched my robe, I turn around and be like, hey, now listen, sister. Now you had 12, where were you at 12 years ago? Now you had a lot of time to be coming after me. And just now, when you ran out of options, just now you're gonna find me? How many of you are glad I'm not Jesus? <laughs> right? You're like, oh, thank God, right? But Jesus, knowing that he was her last resort, welcomed her with arms wide open. I don't know about you, but that makes me love him just a little bit more to know that he knew he was her last option, but he welcomed her anyway. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me just as you are. His arms are wide open to all of creation. What a, can we give him praise for that? What a beautiful savior. Another little side note here. Do you know that we still don't know this woman's name? It's been 2,000 years and we're still calling her the woman with the issue of blood. Like Sherry, Tina, I mean, anything? Like we don't, we don't know her name. And you know, here's the irony. 
The world and its doctors, they took everything she had and they kept promising another cure so long as she had money to give. And when she ran out of money, they ran out of solutions and they labeled her incurable. And she still to this day is known by her disease. The world labeled her. And that's what Satan does. He allures us. He tempts us into sin. And then he turns it on us when we're spiritually bankrupt and depraved. Then he turns it on us and he labels us the addict, the liar, the cheater. He turns and labels us. The scripture calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. But I got good news. Although the world labeled her incurable, basically telling her she's the problem, the world labeled her by her illness. But on that day, when she pressed through the crowd and touched the hem of his garment, when Jesus turned around, he gave her a new title. He didn't call her unclean. He called her daughter. Be of good cheer for your faith has made you well. He called her daughter which by the way is very intentional because Jesus is alluding to the greater miracle he did. You see, the greatest miracle he did for that woman was not heal her body. It was to save her soul. And when he calls her daughter, he's saying, now you belong to me. You're not my enemy anymore. You're my child, my daughter. See, the greatest miracle the Lord will ever do for you is to save your soul. If he heals your body, great. But if he tarries, you're gonna die and go be buried again. Oh, but when he saves your soul, that's eternal. Thanks be to God. That's the greatest miracle of all. Almost done. You got time for like one and a half more points? Oh man, nobody responded except for one. Wow. The other services at least were like, go ahead, preacher. You know what I mean? Like you guys are just like, well, regardless of how you respond, I'm gonna do it anyway, <laughs> all right? But it just, it's something inside of me helps me know when the preacher's winding down. I'm like, okay, I can listen more. I don't know, maybe it's just me. Okay. Don't miss this though. One of the most powerful things, most powerful points in this text is that a multitude pressed by Jesus, but only one reached out and touched him. Oh, church. As Jesus was on his way to Jairus' house, there was a great multitude that had gathered around him, pressing up against him. And when the woman touched the hem of his garment, Jesus turned around and he asked, who touched me? The disciples thought this was a preposterous question. He's like, what do you mean who touched you? There's a multitude of people bumping up against you. What do you mean? But you see, there's a difference between somebody who makes casual contact with Jesus and somebody who reaches out in desperation. I wonder, are you in this room today, casually pressing up against Jesus? Like members of the crowd, you're in the right place, but your mind is set on other things, your ambition, what you're gonna do next. But you know, the crowd pressed up against Jesus and went on their way. But this woman, she came for one reason, to lay hold of the master. You see, the crowd was okay and content with just being near him. They were okay with just getting their Sunday fix, being near him. 
But I wanna warn you that proximity to Jesus does not translate to intimacy with Him. And you can know a lot about God, but not know Him at all. You can be close to Him in the church, but the church not be in you. You can be in His presence and worship, but His Spirit not reside inside of you. I wonder, are you okay with just being an acquaintance, a passerby who just bumps into Jesus every now and then? Or are you like this woman who says, I don't want anything but you, Jesus. I don't care if you heal me. I don't care if you answer another prayer I pray there's only one thing I want there's only one reason I'm here and it's to touch you that woman did more than touch the veil his garment she touched the heart of heaven she had the kind of faith that made Jesus turn around she had the kind of faith that made heaven look her way I wonder are you satisfied with just being near him or do you want him only You know, Judas was okay with being close to Jesus, but he didn't allow Jesus to reign in his heart and life. Judas kissed the face of the Savior and lost salvation. We can't go through the motions anymore, church. We can't go through the motions. Like, why are you here today? What do you want? Do you want a blessing? Do you want a miracle? Do you want to be entertained? Are you looking for a girl? Are you looking for, or do you want him? And I want to warn you, there's something deeply stirring inside of my soul that we cannot love anything more than we love him. If you love anything, if you think about anything more than you love and think about him, it's idolatry. And I'm warning you, there are people in hell that loved Jesus, just not more than they loved themselves. Self is the enemy of your soul. You know what Jesus said? He said, you should hate your mother, brother, wife, sister, family. We read that and critics of our faith read that and they go, oh, that's so evil. Mm -mm. Jesus is not saying hate your family or your wife. He's saying the relationships that you love the most, it should look almost like you hate them in comparison to the way you love me. Don't be content with just pressing by him. Oh yeah, I love you, Jesus. But is he really reigning as the Lord of your life? Don't be satisfied with being near him. Grab hold of his presence. Pray with me now. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And today we say you can have the world. Just give us Jesus. We want you, Lord. And if we're in this room today and we don't love you the way we ought to, forgive us for our unbelief and help our heart to have the capacity to love you first and to love you most. Help us, God, to not just love you for the things you do, but may we grow into a place where we love you for who you are. Today, we confess our sin. We acknowledge that we've been marked by lust, pride, greed, and selfish ambition. And at times, those and even our own self has reigned as the God of our own heart. And today we ask for forgiveness and for mercy. And we're thankful that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross. His blood was shed 
to take away the sin of the world. We believe that he died and was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. Today, we place our faith and our trust in you. Jesus, be the Lord of our life. Change our heart and our desires. May we follow you and serve you all the rest of our days. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.